Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. This is a replay of a episode with the brilliant author Holly Bourne. She's the best-selling award-winning author of many novels. She wrote the Spinster Club series, which helps educate teenagers about feminism. And she's gone on to write so many incredible novels for adults, such as How Do You Like Me Now, Pretending, and her latest book that's just come out called Girlfriends, all of which that I totally loved and they gave me so much to think about. They always do. In this episode, we discussed pretending as that had just come out and it has been described by Dolly Alderton as unsettling and hopeful, enlightening and entertaining, a thoughtful, intelligent, urgent novel women need to read. That really does sum up Holly's work. They are full of meaty topics. She doesn't shy away from uncomfortable themes. And I just wanted to give you a heads up, actually, that we do discuss sexual assault in this episode, in case that's not something you want to listen to today. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with the lovely Holly Bourne. And if you did, please go and leave a little rating. It really, really helps the podcast. Hope you enjoy. This is long overdue. (laughs) But I did look back at my blog posts from like 2013 sort of time. And do you remember I interviewed you for my blog? I do, I do, about fandom. Yeah, and it got such a good response and you just gave such brilliant answers. And I thought, oh, that was before podcast, but who would have thought that I'd uh, drag you back on for an interview? I know, so long ago. Well, thank you so much, first of all, because I know you're very busy. And if you're not writing books, you're talking about books. And for anyone listening who hasn't read, because I mean, you've written so prolifically now. And I know that at the end of 2019, you did that tweet that was like my decade in books. Mm. I know, I really boasted, sorry. (laughs) I mean, you have to take these moments. But did did that blow your own mind? It did, because I think I'm really lazy. um, (laughs) Because I just watch way too much television and just sit in a towel a lot of the time, just staring at the wall. And then, so I was like, oh, I've somehow managed to do all this <laughs> alongside. So yeah, I think yeah, it did blow my mind as well. Oh, it's so brilliant. And I wanted to go back to the beginning just quickly before we get into specifically some of your adult fiction. And I've loved all your books, but I've adored your most recent two that we'll talk about in a bit more detail. But you used to be a journalist, didn't you? And I've only known you as a fiction author, but when I read up about your career at the beginning, it didn't surprise me that you've had stints in like being an agony aunt and you've written about many different things and your work with charities and I was like of course this all kind of makes a little bit more sense of the knowledge you have. (laughs) Yeah I was a news reporter for a local newspaper for two years which was the worst thing I've ever done in my life. Like lots of the worst things that you've ever done in your life. You learn a lot and after that hair raising experience or so I say hair losing experience I did actually go bald from stress <laughs> I yeah got into charity journalism um working for a website that helps young people and then when I was there I kind of just got so invested in the work that they trained me up to be an agony aunt and kind of work on some of the frontline services as well amazing and how did the jump happen from that to the YA books because I feel like I haven't actually ever asked you that I actually started writing my first YA novel when I was a news reporter just because I was so stressed and miserable and just didn't understand how I'd got myself into the situation I went into it very naively it's basically you just can't be a news reporter if you're an empathetic person and you feel people's feelings because you're just exposed to people having awful experiences every day and And having to put a headline on it yeah 
and having to work out how to pitch it in a way that would sell more papers. It was just literally my tummy just hurting thinking about it. It was just like the most ridiculous job for someone like me to have because I just kept crying when people had bad things happen to them and they wouldn't be crying. You know, they'd be like, it's, uh, dude, it's my life. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> um, I just wasn't cut out for it. So I used to come away from like a 12, 13 hour shift and would start writing a, a teen book to kind of escape. And But yeah, working at the charity... Working with young people really helped inform my work. And mm-hmm. I spent five years working full time for the charity and writing the books like in the evenings and weekends and on my commute. And it was just an invaluable combination of things to be doing at the same time. It's amazing. I do feel like novels do have to come from that sort of motivation to want to sit down and get it out because they're such a beast. And so without that real like, right, I've got to I really want to do this. So I guess sometimes they are born outside of jobs, aren't they? Or on the side or when you're like on the bus. Mm, I don't know what I would do if I didn't write. It's just a kind of weird cleansing that I purge of my life. I just sort of vomit up words into a fictional narrative. And I don't know what my life would be if I wasn't able to do that. It's just how I kind of make sense of the things I see every day. Yes, I love that. It's just the true definition of a writer is just someone that like physically has to be like just writing and typing. I wanted to talk about that, actually, your relationship with young people, because I interviewed you at Waterstones as well, didn't I, a few years ago about one of your books, and I was so blown away by the relationship you have with your readers. It was so amazing that night. I mean, it sounds like a bit trivial to say, like, you know, that you're idolised or anything like that, and it's not that you're, like, put on this platform that's untouchable. People feel like they really connect with you and look up to you and the way that you treated the most sensitive of questions felt like a bit of a group therapy session but the way that you talk to young people like they're adults and I just wondered because your young adult fiction is so grown up how was the change to writing quote-unquote adult fiction how did how are those two different I love quote-unquote adult fiction I always feel like I've written a porn book I know it's a bit like adult, adult. 50 shades of grey <laughs> There wasn't much difference. I, I wish I had a, a more succinct answer to that. But to me, writing fiction is about telling the truth through fiction. And you only do it right in my head if you're absolutely terrified. Every single word you put down, you're terrified because you're revealing some sort of truth about the human experience that you've kind of noticed. And you're hoping that if you're brave enough to put that on the page, then somebody will read that in that might change the direction of their life or at the very least like nourish and reassure them and so when I write for teenagers I do just treat them with the respect that teenagers deserve like lots of them are a lot more wise than I am <laughs> so I never speak down to them and also because can you remember being a teenager and how like dreadful it was it's just like awful you couldn't pay me all the money in the world <laughs> specifically to go back to being 14 that was like oh, the most horrendous yeah year nine oh. year nine's the worst whenever i go into schools i'm like give me year nine and the teachers are like are you sure they're <laughs> dreadful they're all just like exploding on each other i'm like yeah that's where they need me <laughs> seriously they do i would i needed you it's just oh year nine particularly for a girl that's the age where all the girls like psychopathic towards each other in the friendships alongside puberty and alongside the first sexual it's just like ugh and but you know so I just tell the truth about that and obviously that's connected Um, so the only difference with writing adult fiction was I was just telling the truth about a different part of life and I guess the only thing I had to overcome was I thought I had to be braver because I was writing about my own age group so there was part some of things in my head going oh what if people think this is me or you know, you have to really kind of 
pummel through and go, I hope that other people feel and think this way. And we're just too embarrassed to say it. Yes. Even though I am this age too, so people might make opinions about me. Some might be true, some might be totally false. And so that was, I just felt I had to dig into my courage a bit more when I was writing for adults. Oh, and you really, you really are a very brave writer and everyone appreciates that from reading it. But it's funny because before dipping my toe into the fiction world myself, I always thought that fiction... Uh, set like a boundary it kind of wrapped itself in a bit of a blanket of like there's a distance and you could never say this is about me because no I've made it all up and this fiction story is absolutely nothing to do with me and what I've realized is fiction is like the most exposing medium I would say I would say my my fiction is even more scary than the memoir memoir I wrote really yeah it's like even more honest than that but it's not about me but I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and how scary Publication Day can be for that reason. Because I don't know if people quite understand how vulnerable fiction can be. I, I think it's, it's vulnerable because people will guess, try to guess. Whereas I guess in a memoir you are just laying it out clear. You go, this is what I've decided to say. This is a part of a story I'm happy to share enough that it's been published in a book. Whereas with fiction... Yeah. You know, it's, some might be autobiographical and some parts might be absolutely nothing. And, you know, that's the job of a fiction writer, I think, is to kind of combine your own truth with research and knowledge and just, you know, an imaginary tale. And only you truly know what bit is what. Yeah. And it isn't a memoir in disguise, but there is some parts of you in there, like, because you're the vessel telling the story. So, of course, you're going to come through. And so with Publication Day looming, it's always you're just, I'm actually quite a private person even though I talk about hugely exposing things I'm always happy to talk about other people's stuff but for me it's just putting anything of permanence out there about my personal life just makes me feel very uncomfortable so I'm always just in my head trying to work out what questions I like what answers I can respond to to questions which don't let my readers down and don't make me feel like I'm just this superior thing that won't share but also having comfortable boundaries and kind of going it's up to me to decide how much of my life I'm willing to share with you and what I'm not but what I am willing to share with you is the story that I've written and yes. I really hope will help you absolutely and that I guess that shows sometimes the pressures that are put on authors to sell books in the PRable sound bites when actually it's like I've just written this whole book can you just read it but I wondered <laughs> over the years because you've obviously uh, done a lot of interviews about your work for many years have you ever had that classic like is this you all the time. Oh, Lord, all the time. The worst thing that's happened with my first adult book, called uh, it's called How Do You Like Me Now? And it's about... A Such a great book. <laughs> oh, thank you. But it's about a woman who, you know, hates weddings because every time she goes to a wedding, even though she's in a seemingly happy relationship with a seemingly perfect guy, she's actually, her life's a complete mess and every wedding she finds deeply triggering. And so she sort of, you know, copes with that by being very snarky and awful. Um, and cutting about weddings in quite a funny way. But, you know, it's because she is a very unhappy person. And since the book came out, the amount of people have apologised to me for inviting me to their wedding or being like, oh, no, I'm sorry, you hate weddings. Or, oh, no, like, and, like, they feel really judged by me. And I'm like, that's not me. Like, I want to come to your wedding. I'll be there at the front, like, holding, like, I love them. That's <laughs> crazy. Because it's not, that is absolutely not your diary entry, like a novel. <laughs> That is crazy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's, um, yeah, that's, that's the main thing where people have just 
terrified to invite me to weddings, which has saved me some money. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm like, no, that's not... I'm, like, so glad you guys are getting married. I, I, I'm a lot happier than that character is. I wouldn't be thinking no silks. And, yeah. But. Do you think it's because with the adult books, like you said, you're maybe talking about topics that are more resonant to your age group, so people take it a bit more like it's ideas floating around your head that you think every day whereas actually it's not the case yeah for sure I think you're protected when you write about teenagers because you'll sort of have that and the older I get the further (laughs) the gap is where you know I could maybe talk about what it was like for me to be a teenager but that's not actually revealing huge amount of deep truth about who I am now how did you go back to being in the head of a teenager for for those books I feel like I'm permanently stuck there anyway. I find it really easy to inhabit the teenage mind. Yeah, I'm actually doing a talk about that later today. So there is like this scientific phenomenon that I talk about a lot in my when I go into schools where basically your memories are made stronger when you're a teenager than any other part in your life. It's called wow. the reminiscent bump. Wow. And it's, an, it's like a side effect of the rewiring of a brain from a child brain to an adult brain. But it means that, yeah, your memories are made stronger. That's why if you close your eyes and say you're 15, you're in school, you can smell the links, Africa. You can remember the humiliation of not being asked to the dance. You can remember the full names of every single popular person in your school. Oh, my God, I can remember everything. <laughs> you're just there. It's, like, so visceral. And then if I asked you to be like, what were you doing when you were 26? God, yeah. Why would someone make us remember those moments <laughs> no. more than others? That's so cruel. You know, I think it's some side effects of evolution or something. But it's, yeah, so to me, I'm just kind of ride my, surf my reminiscent bump and just go back in time and remember that... What I love about being a teenager is, and writing for teenagers is the, the things that can be so important at the same time. One which could be hugely deep and profound, like realising that your parents have a life before you existed and they are totally fallible human beings and the dis- huge discomfort that that causes and how that represents the end of your childhood. And then also your friend getting the skirt you liked from Topshop before you did, which means now you can't get the skirt. <laughs> Just like they can hold equal weight in like five minutes. Wow, that must have been so fun for you to kind of go back through your own archives of memories and smells and things and obviously just channel that into the world you create. That's amazing. Yeah, and I, I don't think being a teenager changes that much. I get asked a lot of questions like, oh, it must be so bad now because of the Instagram and the Facebook and... You always know people don't really understand teenagers if they use the word of the, the TikTok. <laughs> uh, you know, and it must be so much worse. And I do think they might have heightened problems that already exist. But I'm like, no, it's always been roughly the same. If you read Adrian Mole, that was, you know, written what, in the 80s? You yeah. know, he's just like every other teenage boy today. He's worried about the size of his penis. His parents are getting divorced. He's stressed about his exams. He's falling in love for the first time. You know, these are universal experiences and smartphones are just like a kind of minor addition I think to so true. the pain <laughs> maybe it's a good thing that we do remember those years so vividly because I have a nephew at the moment who's who's 13 now and I feel this connection to him I feel genuinely like I get it because I, I think we have to remember what it's like in order to make people feel seen during their teenage years. Because if you completely forgot the uncomfortable nature of being that age, I can imagine teenagers could feel even more alone. Mm. So at least the nudge of the I've been there is, is a good good thing. 
Yeah, for sure. So can we talk a little bit about your writing? Because you're a full-time author, which I I I feel like is just the dream, even though I know that you (laughs) obviously work really hard and have ups and downs within that, but it's amazing. And I listened to you on uh, Hattie Crizel's podcast um, on writing, which was brilliant. Go and listen to that after this one. And you really do talk about how you do the kind of the first draft. Did you say the shitty first draft? No. Did I put did I make <laughs> that up? Made... <laughs> no, but you said that there's a first draft that is like in the no trash way. Draft. The trash draft, yeah. that's it. I think I call mine the shitty first draft. And how has that changed over the years? Is it is it still as hard with every new book it's absolutely awful like the draft I'm working through at the moment I'm just like I have peaked in how shit I am <laughs> writing books and then I keep saying to like my friends or my editor like no this is like the worst thing I've ever written and my editor is like you say this every time and I'm like no but this one actually is and they're like no but you've said that about the last one and the last one so yeah no I think this was my 12th book that I've written and wow. I have learned nothing about trusting myself because <laughs> it's true that the first draft that you've always done has always turned into a polished brilliant book by the end but I guess you will forget that when you're in the moment yeah I think I mean I don't want to undermine how awful I can imagine childbirth is but apparently they you release some hormone just afterwards it makes you sort of forget the pain yeah, so that you kind of go oh I'll have another number two number three <laughs> and then I feel like there must be some sort of writing version hormone release yes. <laughs> we forget I how reckon. dreadful that first draft is and getting it into shape but yeah by the time it's in a shop I will have read the book seven to eight times with the care and help and guidance of the most incredible editors and, and then copywriters and proofreaders and if you read any book seven times you get such a good grasp of things and no, oh, you know what, that paragraph, I was really proud of that the first time I read it, but on the fifth go, is it really adding anything? And mm-hmm. if not, out it comes. I took a lot from that when you said that if you're bored reading anything, it just goes, mm. which is, I think, a good bit of advice. Yeah, it's ruthless. Unless you're writing this fiction. <laughs> <laughs> and you're describing what a shed looks like for five pages. Yeah, in the snow, <laughs> how that represents your virginity. I don't even know. I don't write that sort of stuff. Like, I think people who do are very, very good at it, but... They, they wouldn't let me in their treehouse. But you can tell because, I mean, I race through your books and even with your latest book, Pretending, which is out soon, but you can pre-order it now, is from the very first page, you know, the page about I hate men. <laughs> that is the opening line. <laughs> that is the opening line I was in. And I think I haven't quite finished it yet, but the themes that you explore are so important and I know quite close to... a pretty much every person's heart and I wondered how did the research kind of come about for that in terms of getting that right I was scared to write pretending so sort of to explain briefly uh, what it's about it's about a girl called April who just cannot really get past date five with a guy and just she's dealing with a lot of trauma from a kind of historical rape from an ex-boyfriend that she's never quite processed and after yet another kind of false lead of a man reveals himself to be dreadful, she decides she just wants to get revenge and just to feel unpowerful. And so she pretends to be this perfect woman called Gretel, which I describe as the manic pixie dream girl next door slut with no problems. 
and starts dating people. And of course, this this guy falls in love with her because she's perfect and she has no problems and she can come through penetration alone and she's happy to just listen to him talk as much as he likes and she doesn't nag and she doesn't fuss. And he's just like, oh my God, this is amazing and starts to fall for her. And she's like, but I'm not real. And yeah, the book explores a lot of complicated dark parts of the female experience, particularly a survivor's experience. And I I was so worried about getting it right, especially as it's a comedy. Like the book is to some degree romantic comedy. Um, but it's a romantic It's amazing how you've done both those things. <laughs> Thank you. I hope I pulled it off. Because I was like, where are the romantic comedies for survivors of abuse considering one in three young women you know have been sexually assaulted by a partner you know these women growing up and they're going on dates and they're meeting people and we never really talk about the long-lasting impacts of trauma and how that impacts dating a hundred percent it's almost like you sneak in statistics and quite like educating paragraphs within your novels which i find really fascinating there was i think there's one that says one in four women have been sexually assaulted because I spent a lot of time working with survivors when I worked for the charity and with my work for Women's Aid, also just from being a woman, talking to women, being friends with women, I believe that statistic to be so much higher. Mm. Um, when it kind of comes to hashtag me too, I always feel like a more appropriate would be like hashtag who hasn't. Mm. It's, I think it's rarer to have not been sexually violated in some way if you're a woman yeah. um, compared to if you have. I think the way that you talk about dating, it's... I mean, I haven't been on a dating app for, thank God, years. But if I had to go on a dating app tomorrow, all of my trauma would bubble to the surface on talking to a stranger on the internet. You know, all of my fears and all of my worries and all of my anxieties. And it's like the perfect breeding ground for everything to come back. And that's... I really felt that through your book. What I find really interesting about falling in love, particularly heterosexual women falling in love... Uh, with heterosexual men is that it's just you need to be vulnerable in order for like love to work Mm. also the act of falling in love makes you hugely vulnerable anyway because they've sort of shown now that you you link romantic relationships to survival once you're like attachment is being activated that actually goes back to your early childhood years like but you don't even remember how your parents treated you like deep dark mm. freudian stuff so that's why you can be like totally fine until you kind of start falling with someone and you just become like fucking mental <laughs> and it's yeah. just like it's not you it's your attachment and then if you're a, i'm a feminist and therefore i believe that there's an innate, like a kind of a huge social inequality between women and men, and men have a lot of power over women, even nice, good ones. You know, there's still that power imbalance, and I'm like, yeah. what if you're straight? You're kind of making yourself hugely vulnerable to somebody who already societally has huge amounts of power over you, and they belong to a group of a social group that have probably caused you quite a significant amount of trauma, and yet you're still holding your heart out and going, I believe. It's just crazy yes. like that anyone's brave enough <laughs> just to, to go out there and do it. And unfortunately, from what I've heard from people on dating apps, lots of men don't reward that bravery with good behaviour. Um, in fact, it's just a lot of time it seems to be forever re-traumatising. It's so true. I just wanted to explore these things because I just felt like I hadn't been seeing them discussed. And also, I wanted to show a survivor's love story because so much of stories that I see about 
you know, rape and surviving rape or about like the immediacy afterwards or going to the police or getting, you know, that those are amazing, incredible stories to be told. But I was like, well, what happens if it's five years later and you're trying to find the love of your life? And um, which is the reality for so many survivors. They go on and they have lives and they want to fall in love. Yeah. Um, and they're not just this victim. Like they might have really awesome jobs. They might be hilariously funny. They might even make jokes about what happened to them. And it just, I wanted to show those love stories because for a minimum, let's say, one in four women out there go on Bumble or whatever, going on dates, in the back of their head, no matter how well it's going with a guy, they're thinking, when do I tell him about my rape? Do mm-hmm. I tell him about mm-hmm. my rape? Knowing that that will instantly yes. change things. And also, how do you explain to someone that maybe you aren't wanting to sleep with them regularly, but it's not them, it's actually what happened before... Yeah, and it's sort of like to be judged for things that aren't even your fault and have nothing to do with you. You didn't ask for any of these things to happen. And so, yeah, pretending is just about all the different ways in which women hide trauma to be deemed romantically acceptable to oh, their oppressors yeah. and how actually we, because we're all hiding it so well, we all look at other women and think, well, they're not fucked up and well, they're not this or they're not that. They're so much better than me in this sort of kind of... Because we always love see love as a competition for women and men are this thing to be one, mm-hmm. even though they do horrible things to us. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just a mess. And, uh, so I wanted to tell the truth about the mess, but a hopeful truth about a mess and also to make some jokes about it because it is ridiculous when you get into it. You're like, this is just crazy. And this is just happening all around the country on dates yes. all over the place. Gordon's wine bar, this is just exploding <laughs> on the South Bank. This is people's daily reality. And we're all just shoving our trauma under the carpet and pretending we're fine. Yeah. I mean, this is... To be the cool girl. Yes. Oh, it's so brilliant. Holly, seriously, your book is so good. And um, <laughs> it's going to it's gonna do wonders, I think, for maybe anyone reading who just feels a bit, bit alone, maybe, or just like someone hasn't really seen them. I think that what you do so well is you make people feel seen, which is just brilliant. But I wondered with How Do You Like Me Now and Pretending... There's Tori and and April in both books and they kind of both have alter egos or they both try and be another woman. Is that something that just came out of you as a theme in both books? I mean, I'm going to go out I on know a they're limb not here, similar, but... but I would just say that's just everyone anyway. Yeah, um, well, uh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's not like I'm like, oh, I'm just like writing stories about people who pretend to be different outwardly facing we're all doing that every day yeah i think the psychological word for it is apparently normal personality in anp and it's just like my favorite thing to do is just sit on the tube and look at people and how we're all just apparently normal just sitting here on the tube in our suits and reading our metros and <laughs> going to meetings and it's just like scratch behind the surface of anyone's life and you'll get mess mm-hmm. and you'll get trauma and you'll get confusion you'll get toxic families and you'll have horrible relationships or mental health problems or physical disabilities or and yeah we all just kind of put on our big brave boy and big brave girl outfits and go and just pretend nothing exists and I just find that fascinating I do I think it's so funny when you look in a meeting of everyone with their little jackets on and their briefcases and it's like what are we all doing we're all <laughs> messed up like yeah. we start with that on the agenda yeah and you all get home and the first thing anyone does is get into their pyjama bottoms <laughs> just like <laughs> even the queen but she's got like a comfy pair of joggers and she's just this like I mean, we all pretend that we don't. Yes. And that's what pretending's all about. It's just sort of like, let's just name the elephant in the room, which is we're all pretending. Yeah. It's such a deeper theme, but just told through 
your classic style of writing. But I wondered with the idea, like the first grains of the idea, how do you plant that first seed? Like how does it blossom? Do you plan or do you just let it let it go like Stephen King? <laughs> I am, yeah, I've just have reread his book on writing so many times and we have similar styles, whether or not just because I've read that book so many times or just, but yeah, so I don't plan a lot. I can't write a book until I've got the first line. The first line is really important to me and I could tell you any of my book's first line straight wow, away really? because that's where it begins. Interesting that I quoted your first line to you because it's stuck in my head so much. Is it? Well, it's I all hate my... men. <laughs> Which but... I'm dreading my Twitter feed when that book comes out. So but like, again, technically it's not speech. your diary. <laughs> no, it's not my diary. I just feel like I'm going to have to be like, it was fiction. Um, and it is a setup to a joke as well. You know, it's, it's hilarious. Like, oh, I hate men and then all the reasons why she hates men. And, and like, then some dark goes something. off. And then he would message back and she's like, never mind. <laughs> it's just like... I saw I myself f- in that so I'll much. just forgive the patriarchy as long as he like, texts back within 24 hours of a kiss on the end it's all just forgiven um, so true so yeah it's the first line and usually the first line to some degree crystallizes what the entire book is about so until all that lands in my head oh, yeah. and my worry always is when will the next first line land because i never can control it it will just pop up so with pretending i hate men i was just on a delayed train which seems to be my life always i hadn't even had a bad night and then, but yeah, I think some guy had like pushed past me at the door and I was just like, I hate men. And I was like, ah, and then got my laptop out and had written the whole chapter by the time I got home. Wow. I didn't know that. That's incredible. Just the first line can spark so much. Yeah. That, wow. but, yeah. That's me. It's different for everyone mm-hmm. else. I don't want people who write differently to be like, oh, I'm doing it wrong. Because you're not like, as long as you're writing, you're doing yes, it right. Of course, but, but it's so interesting. People's different little things. Because I know JK Rowling always talks about she has to know the end line. That's just her thing. I wish I knew. And I'm sure there's other things for other people, but that's so interesting. I know that you're constantly writing new books, but do you give yourself a break in between? Is is that like a a set amount of time that you don't write or are you just like on to the next? I try. I've tried to get better at giving myself holidays. Um, I look back at my 20s and I'm like, I don't know how I did that. Um, Just because I was working full time and writing books almost full time. I was getting a book published a year. And so I didn't have a holiday for five years because I had to use all my annual leave for going on book tour or just getting an edit done, weekends, evenings. The there power was, of your 20s. A, yeah, I mean, the, the, no hangovers. You're too old to do that now. <laughs> the energy is definitely... That now. I remember there was a few years where it felt like, and I know this it's because of the timing of publication and things like that. It's not like you were just, you know, doing three books in a year, but they would come out and then another one would come out and then another one would come out and I was like... Wow, that is incredible. Yeah. But also how. <laughs> yeah, just by getting young. <laughs> it's just like, as I said, it, it's I couldn't... Yeah, I'm slowing down and trying to be how, healthier. Um, and also you just need... I think when you're younger, you just have so much to say. And it that doesn't... I think people always have a lot to say, but I've said a lot now. You know, I take up a lot of bookshelf if you've got everyone in my book so part of me is a bit like okay make sure you really want to tell this story because you've already taken up a lot of space like quite literally (laughs) on a bookshelf so I'm trying to be slower and make sure that the stories that I tell things I really believe in but yeah I'm just slowing down because I'm getting older anyway it's just I still have a daily word count 
but I'm allowing myself to incubate a bit more and to read around and to do evening courses and yeah, to, yeah. God forbid, go away to Scotland for a few days. Oh, that's really nice to hear. But also it makes so much sense when, when you need to get something out of your system. It's like that just needs to come out, doesn't it? So it doesn't surprise me that you were just like in your 20s with so much to give and that will continue, but it might look different in the future. Mm. That's really interesting. Yeah. Once um, I've started a first draft, I try to get it done as quickly as possible because it's just such an awful experience even though I love writing the act of writing is just like this weird purging and I'm just in this terrible mood and the house is a mess and I can't think of anything else apart from this weird imaginary life and I'm just like I just need to get back to my life so I'm just like just hurry up and I do just kind of pummel through because it's just such a huge discomfort right and you want to get it out because I wondered is there a is there a part in the process where you're sort of most content because for me weirdly I think it's when I've when I'm in the edit because I know that the book's going to happen and I know that it's like I've done it but then I'm in the in-between stage now where I need to write another one and I'm feeling a bit weird again it's like what's the is there a perfect time in the process where you're like ah oh it's good (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to think I love my job and yet I can't think of any point in my job where I'm like oh I actually enjoy it (laughs) I think after I've mended the first trash draft right so I'm still in a disc comfortable place discomfortable uncomfortable place because it's a pile of trash and I'm trying to make it less trashy and so I'm still having to keep the faith that there is a book in there once I've got through that first awful edit which I don't let anyone read it until they've really just got out all the garbage and I read it back I'm like oh there is something here then I'm quite excited and then I can give it to my editor who's amazing and we'll make it you know be like okay this is what you need to do and then it feels like okay cool there is a book in this kind of massive block of crap. That, that must be a good feeling. <laughs> yeah, so that, so that bit feels good. But then you're like, oh no, there's so much work now to do to make it good. No, that's really, it's really cool hearing about how you do it because I think when writers actually, not that it's like, tell us your process in detail, but it's nice when the behind the scenes is shown a little bit because I remember when I grew up, I would just think, oh, books just literally grow from trees. Like I didn't know, I mean, they kind of do technically, but I just, I did not understand how someone could do it. And when people peel back the layers of it, even knowing that you start with a trash draft is super helpful. So Pretending is out in April. April 3rd, yeah. April 3rd. What are you excited about this year with it coming out and the conversations And anything apart from the book. I'm I'm really excited about this book coming out just because, I mean, I'm scared. It's always scary, but I'm really hoping, as you said, people will feel seen by it. I'm really excited for men to read it, if they're able to. (laughs) I think if men could just learn a little bit more about what it is like to be a woman sitting across from them at a table on a date somewhere and... Like have a bit of empathy for that. I think the world would be a much better place. I think men could learn more from that yeah. book than girls can. I think women will just be like, oh yeah, no, cool, yeah, this is it. But um, do you have any men coming to your events? Is that getting more and more That's each good. time? Yeah, I started with like one who'd just be like, oh, my girlfriend, my girlfriend, baby, come. Now sometimes they're out all by themselves, <laughs> and they're always the best. They're just like great. Um, and I'm, but then I always kind of pick on them in like and like empowering way. But I'm like, you have the most work to do. Like you're the most powerful person in this room because if you go and talk about like this stuff to men, yeah. they'll listen to you. They won't listen to me. They'll just think I'm like a whinging woman. Like the power men have. It's a bit like why I'm not no longer talking to white people about race you know it's like if you're in a, a privileged group 
your job is to talk to the rest of the privileged group because people are so much more likely to listen to you, like no matter how screwed up that is. So whenever they come, I'm like, right, guys, this is what you need to do. (laughs) Totally. It's like if you have the alpha male in the laddie group and they say something that the others didn't know, they're going to remember it and they're going to follow suit. Yeah, the power of that. So they are coming. So I'm excited about that. And then um, it's not, there's some stuff about pretending that isn't, being announced yet i can tell you when we press record but it's 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 hugely exciting and so um yeah i'm trying to just buckle in and enjoy it rather than worry about it but excitement anxiety the same thing aren't they it's just whatever label you put to that feeling in your stomach (laughs) so true but that is the exact right terminology buckle up enjoy the ride it's gonna be really exciting i hope so thank you so much holly that was really great 